Welcome to the Prison Care Podcast. I'm Sabrina Justison, founder of PrisonCare.org, equipping compassionate people to support the often invisible people groups who make up a prison neighborhood. The inmate residents, correctional officers, staff, administration, and the families of all these folks. Join me for this week's episode and be encouraged to think, care, and respond as we explore the challenges facing prison neighborhoods everywhere. Let's support positive prison culture from the outside, because everyone on the inside matters. Welcome to Episode 3 of the Prison Care Podcast, The Roots of Prison Care, Our Personal Story. Sabrina here, and I'm so glad you've chosen to listen today. If you haven't had a chance yet to listen to the first two episodes, let me encourage you to do that. You certainly don't have to listen in order, but those first episodes introduce the mission of Prison Care Incorporated and explain the significance of the work we are doing, as well as laying out in simple terms how average people on the outside can actually make a positive difference inside a prison. Today, I'm going to share with you a little bit of our family's personal story, how we got to a place in life that led to the birth of this nonprofit. The goal of the podcast is to encourage listeners to think, to care, and to respond to the people who make up what I call a prison neighborhood. Most of us don't give prisons a thought very often. We watch the news. We see people commit a crime and be caught by law enforcement officers. We read about a case going to trial and a sentence being handed down by a judge. And that feels like the end of the story. The bad guy is now locked up where he belongs, and society is safer because of it. That was how I operated for the first 50 years of my life, how I thought and felt. I knew one and only one person who worked in a prison. I can't recall knowing personally more than one or two people who were incarcerated, and I didn't actually have relationships with them. I'm not sure I knew anyone who had formerly been in prison. Now, my memory is not the best, and someone in my family or one of my friends may hear this and hit me up later, like, Sabrina, really? You forgot (laughs) so-and-so? So I'm not testifying under oath or anything here. The point is that my connectedness to prison was minimal at best. And I thought about the people in prison neighborhoods almost never. My own family situation was privileged. White, middle class, suburban, educated, married, homeowners. I had homeschooled my kids, a decision we made for many reasons. It was a chance to tailor their education, to avoid cookie cutter living, to lean into their strengths and passions and shore up their weaknesses, to cultivate character as well as academic skill. We homeschooled in community blessed to have lots of other homeschooling families located near us with whom we did all sorts of social things, whatever we would want, fine arts, sports, field trips, science labs, dances, on and on. We were active in our church. We had extended family to whom we were close, who lived within a half-hour drive. Our next to youngest son appeared to have a relatively normal teenaged life, gifted in music, solid as a student, fun, and funny. Nothing like trouble with the law, addiction, violent behavior, none of it. His emotions were big and intense, and there was a history of bipolar disorder in our extended family, so there was sometimes a question of possible mental illness, but if so, he was functioning really well in spite of it. And besides, he was an artist, and you know how deeply creative people often seem to feel things intensely. So, no serious red flags. 
He graduated from high school, was working as a barber, a trade for which he had apprenticed all through his teens, and he was starting the young adult season of his life. He started dating a girl, and their relationship moved quickly toward engagement. They married one year after beginning to date each other. He had had a couple of semi-serious girlfriends in high school, and he had always expressed the desire to marry young, so while we had some vague reservations about the relationship, we didn't know his new wife well at all, and things had moved fast, but there was nothing obviously wrong. Around the time they got married, everything began to change. He gradually withdrew from lifelong friendships, gradually distanced himself more and more from family, quit playing music, spent less and less time with anyone but his wife. They had money trouble, we helped. They had more money trouble, we let them move in with us. They behaved in stranger and stranger ways, and even while living in our house, we began to feel like we barely knew them. She had never connected to us much at all, and he was becoming a person we didn't know. I tried so many times to build a bridge, to find a way to connect with my daughter-in-law, to try to find ways to show love to and communicate with my son, to figure out what they needed, what was changing, and why. But they didn't want to connect or communicate. I was apparently not to be trusted, and I was kept at arm's length, simply tolerated because I was providing a roof over their heads for free. They decided to move away to make a new life for themselves far away, 1,700 miles away in Colorado. They didn't have enough money saved up yet, but they went anyway. The next year, most of 2015 into 2016, we had only minimal contact with them, via social media, one trip we made out there for a visit. But what we saw and heard was growing ever more disturbing. The details are not important. The point is that they appeared to be spiraling downward and picking up speed. There were mysterious health problems for her, symptoms that came and went randomly and which we suspected were all fake. There was marijuana use in truly staggering amounts. There were more financial problems. Finally, they came back east and lived with us again. This time, having them in our house was super uncomfortable. They stayed hidden in the one bedroom with the bathroom attached, my son coming out once a day to make food and take it back into his wife. He avoided all of us, my husband, me, and two of our other kids who lived there, as much as possible, and we sometimes wouldn't see her at all for a week or more. We tried to get him to talk to a therapist on our dime because he was clearly mentally ill at this point. When we talked, much of what he said was irrational. He was paranoid. He claimed to be a different kind of human, somehow superior to normal people. And he was having no parts of therapy, not giving someone access to manipulate his mind. They decided they were leaving again. They couldn't, quote, safely live and heal in our house, unquote, because the energy was bad or some such thing. When they informed us that they would be going, my daughter-in-law coldly told me that because I saw the world with carnal eyes, they could never live their lives the way they needed to, not while sharing space with me. My son expressed absolute confidence that they were going to move out west, find some place where the cost of living was low, work for a while as they built up their own business brand something. It was all very vague, but it seemed to be connected to life coaching and fitness. And they would live free from the limits we all had embraced on our own lives. Big plans. Big. They left. We heard nothing for two months. They showed up again. Skinny, fragile, 
having been living in their car and driving around the country all that time. They moved in with other family members this time, as they were no longer welcome to live in our home, but we did let their pets stay at our house and they were allowed to come visit them. We tried again to get him a therapist, but he didn't want someone practicing mind control on him, trying to take the Holy Spirit from him. It got darker and weirder and scarier. And then one day in December 2016, they stole money and electronics, smashed a TV, and disappeared. This was the first time the police were called. My son had no record to this point. But we hoped that by involving the authorities, they would be caught before something truly terrible happened. We could feel the storm coming. Unfortunately, a couple of young adults who have stolen from their parents is not a high priority for police who are already overloaded, pursuing other more dangerous fugitives, and they were not caught. We heard nothing for 13 months. And then we saw it on the news. They had been arrested for murdering an older woman in her home high in the mountains of Colorado. As the story gradually came out, we learned they had lived with an extended family member for most of that missing year, staying hidden from everyone else, studying survival skills and watching YouTubes about the end times and the soon-to-be-brought-about end of the world as we know it. My son became convinced that God wanted them to go to the mountains and prepare to live off the land while he destroyed the fallen world and started humankind over again with them. And in January 2018, after a fight with the family member who had been providing for them all this time, they took off and drove across the country and up into the Rockies. They abandoned their car at the base of a trailhead and hiked up into the snowy landscape. They lived on the side of the wintry mountain with no tent, only a shelter they tried to make out of branches, trying to keep a fire going, without food, for four days before the exposure and hunger and cold drove them down into civilization, where they found a house that they believed to be someone's currently empty vacation home. They broke in to warm up and steal food. When the homeowner returned unexpectedly, my son killed her. He and my daughter-in-law were arrested. Over the next eight months, much of which he spent in isolation, he experienced a mental breakdown and a breakthrough of some sort. The psychotic delusion he had been living in for more than a year, called by God to live off the land, waiting for the new world to begin, finally began to crumble. He and I began to cautiously rebuild our relationship. He began to see his marriage for the deeply destructive relationship that it was, and he and his wife no longer had any contact. And at this point, with everything in pieces, on the advice of court-appointed counsel, he accepted a plea deal and was sentenced to 68 years in prison. His wife chose to be tried separately, and her case went to trial in November of 2020, where she was convicted and sentenced to life without parole plus 48 years. It really sounds like I just made this all up, doesn't it? None of it makes any sense. It shouldn't have been possible. It's like a bad made-for-TV movie. And yet, it's true. And it has completely changed the trajectory of my life. It has touched and changed every single corner of my world. I am telling our story for a number of reasons. 
First, you should know who I am if you're going to listen to the Prison Care Podcast. Second, you should know that I'm not talking about prison care as a cause. I'm sharing my personal journey of learning to care about and then care for the facility where my son is incarcerated. I'm not an expert offering a solution. I'm a mom offering to share my successes and failures with others along the way. Third, you should know that there are countless people like me who have a loved one who is serving a prison sentence. The vast majority of these people are as normal as anybody is normal. Sure, some fit a stereotype of what a dysfunctional parent is supposed to look like or something, but lots of them are nothing like that. They are your neighbors, your co-workers. They go to your church. They chat with you in line at the grocery store. They just don't let anyone know about their incarcerated loved one because it's so awkward, shameful, sad. I made a decision after my son was sentenced, literally on my 50th birthday, a decision to resist the urge to hide. As I gradually, gradually worked through the shock and grief that accompanied the beginning of our family's new normal, I determined that I would not let the tragedy of it all get the last word. I believe in redemption. I'm a person of faith who is convinced that God can create life out of death, and I wanted to participate in that redemptive work with him. My son goes by J, just the letter J. His given name was Jacob, but as he began to move farther away from the psychotic episode that came to a close finally in prison in 2019, he decided that he wanted to start fresh. He didn't want the name or the life that was connected to it to be his identity going forward. He wanted to become the person he believes he fundamentally is, should be, and wants to be. So, he committed to learning how to manage the symptoms of his mental illness. We'll dig into that subject more in future episodes. To growing as a human, and he stripped his name down to the barest essentials, just like he was stripping away all that had been his life leading up to the crime. Jay. I have been the closest thing Jay has had to a therapist for almost four years now. Our letters and phone calls have been a sometimes exhausting attempt to get him the support he needs to reclaim sanity, to heal trauma, to learn new coping skills, to figure out how to live in light of all that he faces each morning when he wakes up. I have been the grateful recipient of professional advice from a number of wise, trained psychologists, counselors, and therapists with trauma expertise. I've read everything I can find time to read, listened to more podcasts than I ever thought existed, and done my best, making it up as we went along. You know the remarkable thing? It appears to be working. Jay's commitment to becoming healthy was legit. He is doing the work. My desire to learn how to support his efforts was helped along by people smarter than me, and I've been able to share ideas and strategies with him, many of which have been helpful. Am I telling you this to brag on my kid? Hardly, although I am proud of him. I am telling you this because my own lived experience has convinced me that people who are sentenced to prison, even those who have taken another life, you know, the really bad of the bad guys, can be rehabilitated, can choose to change, 
can commit to learn and turn in a new direction, even against all odds, and grow. They can become positive culture creators. I am just naive enough to believe that there are lots more prison residents like Jay who are committed to owning their crap, committed to change and growth, to hard work and honesty, and who need and deserve someone to support their efforts. Sure, I'd love it if my son had a trained, licensed psychiatrist, figuring out a diagnosis, setting up a treatment plan, meeting with him once a week for talk therapy, but that's not possible. So, rather than sitting on my hands and whining, I'm getting the support that I actually can get into Jay's life behind the walls of his prison. That's untrained, unlicensed me, working without a diagnosis, but able to provide safe space for him to process. Loving space in which to be challenged when he's making poor choices. Predictable space that he can look forward to when a day is extra hard, but he knows we'll talk on Wednesday. Jay's transformation has been profound. Although he experiences daily visual and auditory hallucinations, manages crippling anxiety attacks, suffers dissociative episodes, he's known at his prison for being what several people have called a light. Other residents have told me that he is an encourager, a helper, a great friend. How do I know these things? Because I correspond with about a dozen residents at his facility. As I saw Jay benefit from some loving encouragement and support from the outside, I wondered if I could offer some of that same support to others in his prison neighborhood. If Jay could be a light in that darkness, what if I could encourage others to shine more brightly as well? I know how much I gain from the encouragement of others in my life. Wasn't it likely that other residents of his neighborhood would benefit from a pen pal who was really interested in their success? I think about prison culture every day now because I love my son and that's his neighborhood. But I also think about it because of all the other guys to whom I now have a tiny connection, who have shared bits of their lives with me in letters and for whom I pray. I think about prison because I have a connection to a prison. I'm convinced that other people will think about prison once they have a connection to a prison. And the kind of care average people on the outside can offer to people behind the fence just might matter a lot more than we even think it could. We all know how contagious bad attitudes are in the workplace or in our homes, right? Negative energy just spreads like wildfire. Well, think about how much negative energy is locked up in a prison with all those people whose lives have taken a series of turns that have landed them in the neighborhood nobody wants to move into. It is a tall order to expect someone surrounded by that kind of toxic environment to make something better of their lives, to change and learn and grow before they are released. But good attitudes can become contagious as well. It just takes more effort to spread hope and honesty and joy and loyalty than it does complaint, resentment, and suspicion. If a prison resident is cared for, faithfully supported from the outside by someone who has chosen to be a friend and encourager, perhaps they will have the extra energy to be a light in the darkness. I'm sharing our story because learning about a cause, listening to a theory, is not as powerful as making a connection to people who need some help. Now that you have heard my story, 
you are likely to think about prison ever so slightly differently the next time you hear it mentioned on the news. You have a connection. One small, thin connection to a mom whose son is in prison. Your understanding of prison neighborhoods has changed, one tiny bit, because you have heard what happened in our lives and what we are doing in response to it. Stories matter. And telling our stories when we have a loved one on the inside makes it safe for other people to tell theirs as well, to learn that they are not the only one, that they are not required to live in shame-filled silence. So if you have a loved one in prison, I'd like to hear your story. I'd like to be a safe space for you to share what's happened to you and how you're responding to it. And I'd like to remind you that you are not alone and you are not the only one. My email inbox is always open. Info at prisoncare.org. Please share your story with me if you would like to. I will reply and I will do it with respect and care because that is part of what I am choosing to do in response to what has happened in my life. If you would like to hear more about Jay, the challenges he faces living with mental illness while incarcerated, if you'd like to read some of his writing, please visit sabrinajustison.com, S-A-B-R-I-N-A-J-U-S-T-I-S-O-N.com. I'll put a link in the show notes. That's my personal site and the one on which Jay and I publish posts that give people a glimpse into the world of a person living, as Jay puts it, with circumstances being what they are and me being who I want to be. In fact, let's open up another door for response. You can reach out to Jay himself. He would love to get a letter from you. I'll put his mailing address in the show notes, along with some basic rules to follow when writing to someone in prison. Drop him a line. Just say hi. As our time draws to a close today, let me tell you just a little bit about what you can expect on upcoming episodes of the Prison Care Podcast. Today's episode was super personal, and that will not typically be the case. I want to cast a vision for prison care, and I knew that vision casting in the future means laying an honest groundwork and sharing my own story now. An upcoming solo episode will take a close look at what a positive prison culture might actually look and feel like. We'll keep it real, and we'll keep it in line with the stated goals for prisons and their programming, but we'll dream of a future that is a whole lot more hopeful than what exists in most prisons today, and we'll find ways for folks on the outside, like us, to support that positive culture. In an upcoming episode, we'll also introduce you to Jay, the co-founder of Prison Care Incorporated. The overall goal of this podcast is to encourage listeners to think, to care, and to respond in compassionate ways that can have a positive impact on the overwhelmingly negative culture inside a prison's walls. We welcome your questions and thoughts. Please drop us a comment on the Contact Us page at prisoncare.org or send an email to info at prisoncare.org. I never want to fail to remind you that the Prison Care website offers an ever-growing library of always free, downloadable PDF resources, curriculum to help people like you get the hang of impacting a prison in supportive ways. Please visit prisoncare.org, take a look around, offer some feedback, and share the site with your friends. We all have a lot to learn about this important need in our society, and together we can make a positive difference. Thanks for listening to our story today. Thanks for listening to the Prison Care Podcast. 
Be sure to visit us at prisoncare.org. Prison Care, equipping compassionate people to support positive prison culture from the outside. Because everyone on the inside matters.